This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is supported in part by Squarespace, Audible, The Great Courses Plus, and Harry's.com. And we appear to be back. Wonderful. I'm glad we could make it. Yeah, me too. Well, you people kicked maximum butt on that survey we mentioned last week. We had so many respondents that we don't even have to bring it up again. But we are because we wanted to say thank you. Yes, thank you. We also wanted to let everyone know that our schedule is going to be a tad wonky the next few weeks due to my son's spring break coming up. We're a year-round show, and we generally try to be three weeks on and one week off to allow for research, future show prep, and sanity in general, but sometimes things shift around a bit. Right, so we're dark next week, but we'll be back the week after that with part three and the final part of our Flight 19 series. After that episode, we'll be down again for the second week in April for Scott's son's spring break, returning the next week with a new show, taking us back to the Old West for a deeper look at an outrageously successful but lesser-known outlaw. And if you're one of our listeners that gets a bit put out by not knowing when our next show will drop, and I see you guys tweeting at us all the time, mm. remember that you can check out our calendar at the newly minted astonishinglegends.com, built on Squarespace. That calendar is generally filled out at least a few weeks in advance, although we do make changes to it when a topic suddenly sprouts into a multi-parter. Well, speaking of events, here's a quick reminder that we'll be in Detroit at Macomb Community College for our first live appearance on May 4th at 7 p.m. If you're in the area and you want to come, it's free to attend, but they would like you to register if you plan on going. To do that, visit bit.do, that's B-I-T dot D-O slash Astonishing Michigan, and select the register button. You can also find an event page on Facebook by searching the term Astonishing Michigan. To be clear, that's not on our Facebook page, it's on theirs. Okay, where's that tape with our theme music? I know it's around here somewhere. <laughs> Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. At 1950 hours, observed a burst of flame, apparently an explosion, leaving flames 100 feet high and burning for 10 minutes. At present, passing through a big pool of oil, looking for survivors, none found. An abbreviated message from the oil tanker SS Gaines, the night Flight 19 and an aircraft searching for it vanished. Join us tonight for part two of our series on the most famous aviation disappearance in the history of the Bermuda Triangle. Right, so like last week's episode, tonight's show contains sound design cues, courtesy of our sound designer, Ryan McCullough, that are reenactments of actual radio dialogue relating to Flight 19 that is listed in the 500-page Naval Report that was part of the investigation into the incident. Some of these reenactments are slightly simplified to facilitate an ease of understanding. So we're going to talk a little bit about what we covered last week. Just to get you guys back in the swing of things, in case you didn't listen to these back-to-back, we know a lot of people do, but if you didn't, here's just a little overview of where we got to. The first thing we did was we introduced everyone to the 14 members of Flight 19. Now, there were five planes. Theoretically, they should have all had three crew members apiece. Right. But one guy didn't go up, so there were 14 instead of 15. Which added to the confusion, possibly, is that these training crews, class members here, were getting switched around all the time. Yes. So even if they're a guy short, they'll still go up. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Although if the gunner and the radio man are sitting in the plane and the pilot doesn't show up, it yeah. j- I guess it just sits it on the It doesn't go. Yeah. Right. 
exactly. Anyway, so we did talk about the leader, the flight instructor, Charles Carroll Taylor, also known as Charles Taylor, C.C. Taylor, and as Forrest pointed out, like the shoes, Chuck Taylor. Chuck Taylor. Although sure. we don't know if anybody called him Chuck. No, but, I wouldn't to his face. No, I certainly okay. wouldn't. He was uh, 29 years old at the time Flight 19 disappeared. We also mentioned George Devlin, who was 15 when he enlisted, but 17, I believe, when Flight 19 disappeared. He was yeah. actually in the process of changing his name back or officially changing his oh, name when he vanished. But he's not necessarily any more or less important than any of the other guys who disappeared. He's just one that stood out to me because he reminded he's, me of my great-grandfather. Well, yeah, <laughs> and he's a, right. He's the youngest kid. You yeah. Know? I mean, he's really still a kid. Then, yeah. You know, 17. 17. I know. But you know yeah. what? We said this before. People were a lot tougher earlier back then. That's true. Yeah. That's a lot true. more responsible than uh, than I was or even kids now. Well, they had to be. Their parents were at work or... Well, they went through World War II. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And then you didn't live quite as long. And they had a lot of sense of patriotism and doing the right thing. So they jumped in there. Right. And as we said, Flight 19 was a training mission that actually took place just about three months after World War II ended. So these guys had all been through that for the most part. And the point of the mission was to practice dead reckoning, which we explained is a scientific approach to navigation. It's about using charts and knowing your wind speed and your your bearings, where you're going to turn. And in theory, you don't even need windows to get it done. All you need is your instruments and good calculations before you go up. Exactly. Distance equals rate times time. So if you know those things, you, you'll you know how far you've gotten. Now, if you're off by one of those elements of the equation, it can be a cumulative error. Yes. If it's only a few minutes in and you're off, well, you're not that far off. Wait an hour, like these guys, now you're way, way off. As Robert Plant said on the album, the principle of moments drifting further from you by degrees. <laughs> there you go, yeah. <laughs> and uh, again, it's a little like uh, Amelia Earhart. They could have been... Uh, way off in their calculations, and then there's no land in sight. So in addition to practicing the dead reckoning, they were also practicing their torpedo bombing runs because the Avengers that they were in, the TBM Avengers, were, after all, torpedo bombers, much like the one that H.W. Bush, Bush 41, flew in, and we told you about that, and had yeah. to uh, ditch off that the San Jacinto. And that became a major workhorse bomber for the Navy, for the rest of the war. That's right. Now, here's something super fascinating that we've got that, to my knowledge, nobody else has done up until this point. We have this really awesome guy in the Astonishing Research Corps who lives in the Netherlands. His name is Martijn Hogendorn. And Martijn is a little bit of a computer whiz, apparently. I don't really know him that well. Like with many ARC members, I haven't met him in person. <laughs> right. But we have spent a lot of time together in the software program that we use to communicate all the research. And he went into Google Earth at my request and actually reconstructed navigation problem number one, which was the flight that they were supposed to be taking, as well as the path that we know they took up until they started to get wonky at the end. And right. we just sort of estimated where they might have wound up. So you can go there and run the tour in Google Earth. I'm not sure if you've ever done this, but it's like an animation that takes you from point A to point B, and it's kind of neat. So you can do yeah. that, or you can just download the KMZ file, and it pops onto your Google Earth, and you can see all the routes. And he actually took the time to put in time points in the evening and radio messages that were received at those times and where we thought everybody was. It's really fascinating. So we're going to be sharing that KMZ file. We'll also be sharing just a still of it in case you're not a Google Earth person. And we will share some links about how to play a 
tour in Google Earth because that's going to be for you super users, I guess. So Yeah, you fly through it. But now, you can do it. The yeah. only problem is that I think you're very close to the ocean surface. Yeah, that's one problem. <laughs> okay. We couldn't figure out how to get yeah. an altitude going. So you get down there and sometimes the line looks like that you're following flies yeah. all over the place, but it's it's still better than nothing. <laughs> and, and sure. And I believe that there's probably some flight simulator programs that you can punch in and they will give you terrain mapping like that at yes. your specified altitude and that's turns true. and all that. That's true. We do not have access to that. No, we don't. <laughs> but great. the other thing that's cool about Google Earth is that it's free and anyone yes. who's listening to this can get it. And then if they can figure out how to play the tour, they can do that. But also you will have yeah. it mapped out on a map. So in terms of navigation problem number one, which I just mentioned ago, that was the training mission that they were trying to fly. It was a triangular course, but it had four legs. There were three sides to the triangle, but there were four legs. Leg number one took them from Fort Lauderdale at the Naval Air Station, which was their base, to a very small island or really nothing more than a shoal called Hennen Chickens. That was 56 nautical miles where they stopped and practiced bombing runs with their torpedo bombs for about 20 minutes. They then went on from Hen and Chickens Islands to Great Stirrup K. Now, remember, they charted all this out ahead of time. Great Stirrup K happens to be where they're supposed to be. But in reality, if they've done all their calculations right, they're just going to go another 70 or so nautical miles and they're going to turn. Yeah. And they go this next distance, which puts them roughly over Great Stirrup K, and they turn to the north-northwest. This is going to take them over the Grand Bahama Island, which is a large island that should be hard to miss. And after they pass over that, the next turn point is at Great Sail K, S-A-L-E. Mm. From there, they're to turn southwest and go back to Fort Lauderdale, completing their triangle. This whole thing is about 310 nautical miles, and they should be able to do it all in a few hours, including the 20 minutes of practice bombing. Last week, we also mentioned how Flight 18, which was just 25 minutes ahead of them, completed navigation problem number one with no issues. And it was a problem that was flown frequently by multiple flights, dozens of times, probably each week. It's problem number one. Exactly. That's the one you start with. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at the map, it's a very basic route, but enough to train you and enough time that every training exercise, you got to be serious because I have heard personally of a lot of training accidents that didn't go so well in the military, and people end up getting hurt or dead. That's right. So you have to take it very seriously, but it's not the most difficult orientation and navigation exercise. But realize again, this is a bombing run included in this. So yeah, it's live ordinance, I believe. Again, you got to take it seriously or what happens is what happens here. That's right. And the other thing to remember is whenever you're reading about Flight 19 and the disappearance of Flight 19, and there's people trying to recreate the route, and they've gone out there and done that, including Larry Cush did that and talks about it in the at the end of his book. He did it in his plane, which was a single-engine plane, and he and whoever was with him, I can't remember now who it was that was with him, but they had both decided that they didn't really want to be doing it in a single-engine plane. And that's the other thing about the <laughs> yeah. Avenger. That's a single-engine plane, and no matter how easy this mission is, you are out over the ocean in a single-engine plane. That's yeah. one engine, and if something goes wrong with it, it's one engine, it's all you got, and you're done. Yeah, I remember that as a kid. Remember when uh, you could actually go into the cockpit and the pilot would wave you in and like, come on, kid, take a look, and they'd give you little metal wings to put on, and like, those days are gone. Now yeah. it's a bolted door. But I remember being in the cockpit and asking the pilot about the engines and stuff, and he said, uh, well, you know, don't worry, kid, because even if three engines conk out on this big bird here, we can still fly this baby on one engine. And I was just like, wow, this massive plane... And like you said, it's not ideal. Yeah, I'm not going to be excited to be on the 747 no. with one engine going. No, but you won't crash. That's the thing is that you could still maintain some altitude. 
You know yeah. what's fascinating? Iron Maiden, one of the guys in the band actually, what? they have a 747 and he flies it everywhere oh, really? they go. <laughs> well, in addition yeah. to being an Iron Maiden, right. he's well, a 747 pilot. Well, that happens. You know, it, look, it's a hobby like anything else. Uh, John Travolta has his own 707. Yes. Which he can pilot. And that's small. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty, I mean, for one family, you know, one individual, it's much more than you need, but people get really serious about it. They get into it. And uh, then it's like with ships, the higher you go, the more testing and training you have to accomplish to do that. That's right. But here, <clears throat> yeah, in the, in the Avenger, like you said, one engine conks out, you're in trouble. And you're only going to glide for a short distance before you have to ditch. Yeah, and if you look at it, it's not, you know, bless it, and all right. due respect to people that flew that plane, it doesn't look exactly like the most beautiful glider. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah. It seems, it looks kind of like a brick with it's a very, wearing a funny little hat. Exactly. So. <laughs> it's, it's stout in the middle. But yeah. one interesting thing that I noticed, and I'll mention it here in case I forget, now that's that important, but I was watching the opening, and I included that clip. It's the opening for the movie Against the Sun. That takes place in 1942, I believe, at the beginning of the war. And it's three guys that have to ditch a torpedo bomber. Yeah. And what I realized is that, you know, he gets down to E, they, they lost their way, they can't find the homing signal back to the carrier. So the sun's going down. It's eerily similar to maybe what these guys experienced here. And I remember the pilot saying like, well, we're going to have to ditch while there's still a little bit of gas in the tank. I was thinking about that. Like, why do you not want to totally run out of gas? It's like, well, you want the engine to be maneuverable. You want the plane to be maneuverable so he can control it like Sully on the Hudson. Yeah. Going down. If you're totally out of gas and then the engine's conked out, now it's a big clunky glider. Oh, and that's the first thing investigators always look at on prop planes yeah. in a crash is what they can tell whether or not the prop was spinning yeah, exactly. by the damage it has after, if they can get to it after the collision, because if it was spinning, then right. all the propellers, I guess, are damaged. And yeah. if not, and it's just on one side, or they know the guy ran out of gas. He ran out of gas. Yeah. Now that's Which what that happened is... to John Denver. Ran out yeah, of that's gas. right. Yeah, he ran out of gas. And ditched in the ocean. Uh, there was a auxiliary fuel tank, I believe he did not switch to. Or yes. couldn't, or didn't remember it or couldn't do that. So he ran out of gas. And... Yeah, he was in a long easy, which doesn't look like, it's like a flying... It's, yeah, it's an experimental frame. plane. Yeah, exactly, yeah. experimental plane. But I remember Lieutenant Taylor saying that when we get the 10 gallons for all the planes, when the first guy has to ditch, we're all going to ditch. Right. So that's his mark there. It's not, don't wait till you're sputtering and then the prop's not turning. When we get to 10 gallons, the first guy that has to go down, we're all going to stick together because that, he knows at least, is the best chance of survival, sticking all together. That's right. If you all get separated now, that goes way, way down. Right. So getting back to our recap, we also mentioned that he said on the radio that both his compasses had failed, and right. there was some discussion around that, which we'll be coming back to when we discuss our theories, and that they just weren't sure how to get back to land. That was the other, the other issue for them. The last thing that we told you about was a search and rescue, air-sea rescue plane that took off from a base at Dinner Key, Florida, which was out of contact and feared loss. That was a Dumbo, which we explained about the Dumbo aircraft. And then another airplane, a Martin Mariner, call sign Training 49, was also out of contact and sadly would never be seen again. And that's what the quote was referring to at the top of the show. Tonight, we'll be picking up where we left off from our last episode. So now that I've had a chance to work on our website for the show, I gotta say, not only does the whole thing look way cooler, it's a lot easier to work on when creating pages for the episodes. I know it really is much more intuitive, as they say, because the way you create, add, and arrange the web page elements you want, whether it's text, photos, or videos, or your own online store, the Squarespace layout idea just makes more sense. 
Once you start playing around with it, you can see where they came up with a name because they had the brilliant yet simple idea to divide the web page into square spaces so it's easier to create what you want. Get it? Yeah, I get it. Okay, that was a rhetorical question directed towards the audience. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Look, what I mean is that unlike other web page design programs, you're not trying to write HTML code for the whole page at once or plug in stuff that doesn't fit or look right once the page is done. Or you're doing that saving and checking, saving and checking, saving and checking. You know what that's like. Yeah. Well, with Squarespace, it's so much easier to visualize and then create exactly what you want. You just start clicking or dragging and dropping, and the result is simple, clean, and elegant. I mean, if you want to do HTML markup within the squares, you can do that too, because it's also really flexible. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It lets you go either way with that. And it's also a breeze to maintain because Squarespace is an all-in-one platform. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. And if you ever do have a question or need some help, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer service has got your six. Ooh, combat pilot speak. Very nice. Well, don't wait to grab that domain name you've been thinking of or wait to showcase whatever it is you're doing. It's time to make your next move with a beautiful new website from Squarespace. And we think you're going to find the Squarespace process is actually really fun, not frustrating. So just use the promo code LEGENDS at checkout for 10% off any website subscription or domain purchase at squarespace.com. That promo code again is L-E-G-E-N-D-S. Squarespace, make your next move. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Michelle. Now, back to the show. We now rejoin our story already in progress. Nice. That's mm-hmm. kind of like the uh, old days. Well, yeah. All right, so we left off with Lieutenant Taylor. When the first man gets down to 10 gallons of gas... We will all land in the water together. Does everyone understand that? Yeah, so there were a few more radio transmissions after that from Lieutenant Taylor. In fact, Port Everglades actually had more contact with Flight 19, and this next one was probably one of the most important. Port Everglades to FT-28. Did you receive my last transmission? Change to 3,000 kilocycles. Repeat once again. Change to channel one. 3,000 kilocycles. I cannot change frequency. I must keep my planes intact. Cannot change to 3,000 kilocycles. We'll stay on 4805 kilocycles. The interesting thing about this is 3,000 kilocycles or 3,000 kilocycles is an emergency channel. Right. And that's why they wanted them to change. I can't remember, but I believe it actually has better range. It's a better frequency to be broadcasting on. But the other main reason that you want to change from the training frequency of 4,805 kilocycles is because the training frequency is crowded. Right. Not only is it this frequency that they use on the training missions, but it accepts interference from terrestrial Cuban radio stations. Right, right. And boats use it as well. So there can be a lot of traffic on it. And yeah. when you have a crisis, you should go to 3000. But he didn't want to do that. Well, most, you know, radio protocols, I know we're talking about the 70s, the old CB radio craze yeah. uh, that was happening. I grew up with that. Yeah, actually. we knew that uh, Channel 9 was for REACT, which is kind of a volunteer group and also some first responders that monitor the channel for people in distress. Yes, so it's an emergency channel. Exactly. So you would switch to Channel 9. You're not supposed to be on there for any other reason. But if you needed help, I know because some of my grandparents' uh, friends 
had the CB on all the time, and they were volunteers, so they would take kind of shifts, have it on the background. If they heard anything, they would respond right away, and then they could call the authorities for you. Yeah. So that's that's it's, pretty It was common. like a citizen's version of the ham radio with a much weaker signal, yeah. but people were listening that could theoretically help you out, as well as the first responders, like you said, and the FCC would come after you if you were goofing around on yeah, it. Yeah, you're not supposed to be goofing around on it, but what you're saying about like the other channels, remember Channel 19? That was the trucker's channel, so everybody's on that one. Yes. And so when you turn to it, is a tremendous amount of chatter in people goofing around on that one. So usually if you wanted to clear channel, you'd move to something else. Less oh, you would start a conversation on the one channel and then you would move to a lesser channel. Yeah, right. Exactly. There was a whole origin of the expression, Breaker 1-9. And that meant that you were coming in, I'm breaking into You're the You're breaking into Channel 1-9. But yep. what's interesting here is that he does not want to tell his other students to switch over. It's fascinating. And it's, of course, speculation because it's not like he had a long conversation about no, it. But exactly. these are the theories. One is that these guys flew these Avengers. A lot of times they were flying in the daylight and they used hand signals to communicate with each other. Yeah. There's a couple of reasons for that. Military operation, it allows you to communicate with each other with and maintain radio silence if you're going on an important bombing run or something like that. So, of course, they have a developed hand communication. Right. But the other thing is that changing channels back then, it wasn't just pushing a button. It was difficult. And yeah. even though the planes all had radio men, he was concerned for both the reasons that, A, it was getting dark yeah. and the hand signals were not going to work anymore. Right. And he's flying with a bunch of rookies. More yeah. or less. I mean, they're experienced aviators, but compared to him, they're less experienced. Right. They each had about 300 hours of flying time. Right. Where he had over 2,000, I think. Yes. Yeah. And they were in an emergency situation already. So in his mind, what people are speculating is that he was concerned that he was going to lose communication with his students. Right. And because he was losing daylight, yeah. hand signals weren't going to work anymore, and because the channel changing process can be involved and it might not work out, and then if there's no way to communicate with them either by hand or radio, they're in real deep doo-doo, and they're already in deep doo-doo because they're yeah. lost. Right. Well, if you want to see that process in action, it's that fun little clip I found, and I posted it for Flight 19 Part 1. It's a World War II training film showing a guy who is a oh, radio yeah, that uh, engineer to go yeah. out there and check the radios, make sure everything's working, all the connectors are tight for fighter aircraft. Yes, Forrest sent me this clip, and I watched it the other day, and I could not believe how involved making changes on the radio was. It was a complex <laughs> process, and you really had to know what you're doing. And well, then, if, you, if you'd done it a few times, then you would get the gist of it, but in the one that they're training on, uh, several aircraft that are fighter planes, not these torpedo bombers, but one is the Republic P-47 Thunderbolt, and you can see you have to crank a little wheel, and that turn, it's not a digital counter here, where you yeah. just tune right to that station, and you realize how easy that makes that. It was a little wheel, you had to kind of turn, and it was a dial, and there's basically three receivers, so the, each one has a different volume. It was the most difficult thing, but I could see that in a panic situation, he may not want them to attempt that because then now if you're lost, then you're, you're basically having to just sit there and, and kind of ping back and forth to find it. Yeah. And if there's plenty of radio interference, that might get really confusing. And on top of that, if there isn't chatter on the channel, it could probably be even harder to find because you don't really know when you're at the right frequency if people aren't talking on it when you're looking for it. I don't know. I'm speculating on that because right. I don't fully right. understand how radios worked in World War II. Again, if they're in that kind of situation, there's a definite reason that he did not want them to attempt that. And we don't know. Just logically here, being on the ground armchair quarterbacking this, it's like, well, why didn't you want to do that? So we don't know. Again, the conditions might have been much worse than we have imagined now. Yeah. He was a responsible instructor, yeah. I think. And I I would go with 
for the safety of his crew and because he specifically said he needed to keep his planes intact, keeping everyone in communication. Now, the problem with this is, and he might not have known this, but all of the radio stations up and down the east coast of Florida were not tuned to the training frequency that he was on, 4805 kilocycles. So the only people that could communicate with him were Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale, the other naval air stations that had training missions that were all using that channel. The emergency channel, 3000, would be where the air-sea rescue bases would be tuned to. And I just read about this. For them to change their frequencies to 4805 would take a series of adjustments and up to an hour. Wow. So... This begins the communication problems. And that is one, I think, maybe even the main problem here with this whole operation and this whole mystery. There were spotty and poor communications. It wasn't like these guys were under combat, it's radio silence, and they couldn't communicate, and they're totally out in the ocean by themselves to begin with. They're just off the coast of Florida. Right. They're not far away. Yeah, Yeah, they're not that far away. These training exercises aren't, you're meant to be coming back from them. Which is also why people weren't really panicking. Everybody was like, this is not a critical situation. Exactly. I think that's a good point there. They're They're not taking flack. They're not so far away that they've got a thousand mile range. Right. He'll figure this out. Yeah. And and probably Lieutenant Taylor thought that as well. Like, yeah, okay, it's a little foobar, but we'll figure this out. Not, Not to panic anybody yet. The other thing I think about the radio station conundrum and them being on the one channel and the other basis being on the other channel is not only did he say, hey, yeah, I'm not doing that. That's a piece of information that's critical to the entire search operation that doesn't appear to have been conveyed to everyone involved in the search. Right. It's one of those things that just got lost in the chatter of the scenario that effectively divorced a good portion of the search and rescue teams from being able to even talk to him. Yeah. When they were out in planes, they were sent out and told to communicate on 3,000 kilocycles And he said, I'm not going to 3,000 kilocycles. So a lot of planes that were out there hunting were not even hunting from a radio standpoint in the right place. Yeah, exactly. So this is important to consider. And the other thing, to your point about what you just said about miscommunication, it actually reminded me a little bit of 9-11. Yeah. Because there were two phases of communication problems there. In the course of the actual event and the destruction of the trade towers, when the emergency responders came, it's my understanding that they had difficulty communicating with each other because they all had their own unique frequencies. Exactly. The fire department uses their own. FBI uses their own. Manhattan police uses their own. So it was hard for everybody to communicate. If you've ever been on a professional walkie-talkie, I think it's up to 15 channels on your, yeah. you know. And so if you kind of get goofed up, you're now having to try each channel to raise somebody. Yeah, that's a major problem. And I guarantee you they fixed that since then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. And then the other issue, even before 9-11 happened, was on the intel side, in terms of the information that the different branches of the government were collecting, they weren't sharing it with each other either for a variety of reasons. Not yeah. to be obstinate, but there was pride. You know, right. the FBI is, we're, on, we're working on this. Yeah. The other department's working on that. And that's the reason they created the umbrella of the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, exactly. So all the divisions could communicate with each other. And for me, when it comes to looking at how this search was dealt with, and even this miscommunication about what channel to be looking for him on, and how the information was conveyed back and forth between the different bases and the search planes and the search boats, I feel like there was a lot in common. A lesson wasn't learned, honestly, because that is a lesson that we should have had going forward after the investigation of this horrible event. By the time that he got into trouble and was relaying that they might be lost, there was no start of a procedure at that point. 
again, the other pilot from the other training mission was like, you know, put the uh, sun on your, on your port wing and turn west. And here's the other thing that's interesting. The pilots themselves, you're right, the search operation did not have a coordinated procedure planned yeah. out, but the pilots themselves had been trained with a specific type of recovery that they're supposed to do if they get lost. Right. That recovery depends on which side of Florida you're on. Uh-huh. Because if you've taken off and you've gotten lost with Florida to your west, then you turn west and you go till you get to land. Exactly. If you've taken off and you've gotten lost in the Gulf and right. Florida is east or northeast of you, then you turn east or northeast until you get to land. Right. The problem is if you don't know whether you're west or southwest of Florida or east or northeast of Florida, you're hosed because you don't know which direction to turn to get back to land. That's that primary point there. And that's something that Larry Cush mentions in his book. That procedure does not work if you don't have Florida's position identified in the first place. The fix is in. This part of this mystery is particularly intriguing to me because as many times over the years that I've looked at it, I had no idea that this bit of information existed. I felt like when I thought about Flight 19, it was gone after they lost radio contact, and they really had no idea where to even look for it. And that is not true. Mm -hmm. At six o'clock, the night they disappeared, something amazing happened. The Gulf Sea Frontier Evaluation Center in Miami was able to take directional bearings sent by radio stations on the East Coast to as far inland as Texas to triangulate an approximate position on Lieutenant Taylor's Avenger. And theoretically, as a result, if they were all together, all of Flight 19. Now, is this in uh, Larry Cush's book? It's actually on a map in there. And we also have it pinpointed on the Google Earth map that we mentioned earlier. Right. You'll be able to see where that fix was. Now, the next question I had was, what is a sea frontier? Well, I thought this was pretty fascinating. These are boundaries that were set up during World War II that essentially went from the coast to about 200 miles into the ocean, nominally, mm -hmm. possibly further. And they were set up to guard against submarine traffic getting too close to the United States. Right, right. And there were several sea frontiers. The Calm Gulf Sea Frontier was originally in Key West, but it was later moved to Miami. And that's where it was when they were triangulating this position. So at 6 p.m., they provided this fix to the search and rescue crews, which they said was calculated based on reception of communication from Taylor's plane, call sign FT-28, at around 5.50 p.m. The irony is that particular communication was him stating how he wasn't switching to the emergency frequency. <laughs> right, but, so it's, when, but it's something. Yeah, you know, yeah. so he's like, I'm not going to the emergency frequency. That inadvertently allowed them to figure out where he was. Yeah. The problem is you can't really pinpoint it. It's not super specific. So what they did was they had these particular coordinates and what they said was the planes were within a 100 mile radius of these particular coordinates. Right. You've narrowed it down a little, but it's a, still a huge area. Yeah, and the very next question I had was, how do you find a lost airplane out over the Atlantic Ocean with 1940s technology? I didn't have a full understanding of that. I think you had mentioned something about transponders. At, at the time, it was something that we talked about in, I think, part one. I can't remember if we talked yeah. about this, but the IFF which stood for Identification Friend or Foe, which exactly. was an early version of a transponder. But that's not something that you could find the plane with. No, no, that's sending a signal so that, say, like people on the coastline know that a friendly plane is approaching rather than an enemy aircraft. And of course, if it's an enemy aircraft, they're not really sending a signal saying like, yes, we're the enemy, we're coming at you yeah. to buy like Pearl Harbor. You'll soon be expecting us bombing you. 
And as we mentioned before, it's a way of uh, trying to cut down on friendly fire incidents, which did happen quite a bit during sure. the war. Sure, sure. Yeah. But I believe the scenario is similar to the real-life incident of a three-man naval torpedo bombing crew that did go down. And this would be January 16th, 1942, and again, profiled in the movie Against the Sun, where they lost contact with their carrier, the USS Enterprise. So once that happens, and I believe that is a transponder kind of scenario where you lose radio contact, you cannot home back to land. And they got too far out. They are on a submarine patrol looking for Japanese subs in the Pacific. And same kind of thing. They couldn't find their way back. They had to maintain radio silence because the Japanese could be listening and could home in on them. And so finally they broke that because they were having trouble. Like now the sun's going down, they're running out of fuel. And that was a real life story where the three men ended up in a little tiny life raft for 34 days, Ugh. and they drifted over a thousand miles, and then they landed on the atoll of Puka Puka, which was happened to be friendly at the time, and got picked up. But that whole movie is imagine crashing is the first part. To whole, drift and land on a uh, tiny island is yeah. a, it seems to take an extraordinary amount of luck. Well, that was a big gamble, and a lot of the movie is them arguing, like, well, why couldn't you get them on the radio? Well, why'd you lead us off in, in this direction? You know, and you're still trying to maintain the officer and enlisted men rank hierarchy, but there's no rank. It's like you're in a life raft kind of surviving on rainwater and your meager rations because that thing crashed and broke up. And I think the survival gear that was on it, most of it got lost. Right. And then you get to that Warner Brothers scenario where everybody starts looking like a turkey leg. <laughs> like the steaming turkey dinner. No. And the thing is they maintained the officer and enlisted rank hierarchy, which maintains order in that situation. Otherwise it's three guys, sunburnt, delirious, fighting each other. In an effort to figure out exactly how Lieutenant Taylor's plane was found, I reached out to the ARC, and one of our ARC members, Samantha Long, had a close friend who is a pilot with lots and lots of hours under his belt, and he actually lives in Florida. His name's Hank Lamb. And she asked him a little bit more about how this fix could have been acquired. And here's what he said. He said it would be triangulation based on a radio station. So you would measure the time between audio signals to see how far they are from each station. Based on the frequency of the audio, they could triangulate the plans, the same way a cell phone works between points or towers. The information, he said, might have been classified in regards to all the technology available. And a way that, for instance, the station in New Jersey that reported helping with the fix could find a plane 100 miles out to sea in 1945 would be through intermediate radio stations that act as a relay or getting relayed through multiple stations. It's not something the aircraft would actively participate in, which was one of my big questions that I asked her to ask him, if it was a passive or active operation from the airplane. He said that those at a station could hear radio talk and reflection, but not have a way to answer back. So they probably overheard the conversation about changing to the emergency frequency. Hank gave an example saying that a station in New Jersey could be monitoring the entire eastern coast, depending on military technology at the time, and especially in wartime now, there would be no pockets of no communication in the air. And these stations get radio signals looping back to them, sweeping and picking up frequencies. Pilots would not be aware that they were being picked up, so there would be no use to the aircraft. It's more for the radio station. He went on to add, I looked at a picture of an Avenger online in formation, and if it's historically accurate, you can see a small wire from the canopy to the tail of the plane. That is an ADF antenna, so I am now certain they could receive NDB signals, but from how far away, I don't know. It's just something I noticed. So I know they had other navigational aids and didn't use them, perhaps. 
being a classic pilot, and also my dad is like this too, he put these acronyms in there. It's just like, everybody knows what this, I had no idea what uh, NDB or <laughs> yeah, ADF yeah. was, so I had to look that up now. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, Hank, really appreciate your chime yes, in. Yes, thank you so much. If you're listening to this, and Sam, thank you for talking to him. I was so thrilled that she was able to track this down, but an NDB signal is one from what's called a non-directional beacon, and that is an aviation aid. The ADF antenna is an automatic direction finder. That antenna can interact with the non-directional beacon to give pilots information on their bearings and position. But there's a couple things to note about this. The highest powered NDB signal is only good for about 75 nautical miles. So with an NDB, even right at the beach, if the aircraft is more than 75 nautical miles out, it's of no use. However, the NDB has another major advantage the signals follow the curvature of the Earth, unlike something that you mentioned in part one of yeah. the series where they can't go over the ball, you know, yeah, right. unless you think the Earth is flat. You can't, you can't go over the ball. And so what yeah. happens is they start out at a point and then they wind up shooting out into space yeah. on a tangent. Very good. You yeah. remember your geometry. <laughs> yes, I do. And yeah. well, we're, of course, experts on tangents. That's true. <laughs> but the thing about that signal that's interesting is it hugs the ground, but it doesn't right. go very far. The problem with this is, and I thought this was really interesting that Hank saw that antenna because I hadn't really thought about it. Yeah. Cush said in his book, The Disappearance of Flight 19, that at the time, Navy policy was to install direction-finding equipment only in multi-engine aircraft. The Avenger, as we said, is a single engine, so by Navy policy, Flight 19 would not have had ADFs, which is what Cush said in his book. Yeah. It wouldn't have had that long antenna. So, well... But here's the problem. Yeah. We started looking at the images, and Hank was right. There's a bunch of pictures... Yeah of Avengers with that long antenna going from the canopy to the tail. There's yeah, even, wartime pictures. Yeah. yeah. And, well, there's even one of Lieutenant Stoll or Captain Stoll, I can't remember his rank, who flew out of Fort Lauderdale as well in the air over Fort Lauderdale with one of those antennas. Right. And, and that's right in Larry's book. Yeah. So I'm not sure what's going on there. I did look up those types of antennas mm -hmm. and we started digging around on that, you know, trying to find more Avengers with ADF antennas. And I found this really cool blog called tailspintopics.blogspot.com. And we have a link to the page there where they talk all about the antennas and the different types of ones. I guess that this particular one was called an HF or high frequency mm -hmm. antenna, which is the one just below VHF, the very high frequency, which is a word that people who were living in the 70s might remember. Well, remember on your TV dial knob. You had the VHF, uh, very high frequency. And you had UHF. Ultra, ultra high, high frequency. frequency. Yeah. yeah, look, we harmonized. <laughs> um, but <laughs> the point is... I'm not entirely positive whether or not the HF antenna, which is what this antenna is described as that's on top of the Avengers as well as other aircraft from World War II, is the same exact thing as an automatic direction finder or a direction finder. I'm sure some people are going to be chiming in and letting us know about this because I know we have a lot of pilots that listen to the show. But it's a little bit odd that Larry's saying the planes didn't have them, and we have pictures of planes that clearly seem to have them, and using those should allow you to be able to get a bearing if you're able to pick up a signal if you're close enough to land. But I didn't read anything about it in the investigation. So that's a discrepancy and one of those things that often creeps up when we start doing research into a mystery like this. There'll be something that doesn't jibe and we can't quite figure out what the reality of it is. Right. Okay, so getting back to the fix, which is the whole point of this section of the show, where the heck was it? It was 29 degrees, 15 minutes north by 79 degrees, zero minutes west. Now, I love getting latitude and longitude numbers like this. You can go into Google Earth if it's set correctly and just type them right in and it takes you right to it. However, if your settings for the format of coordinates is not set right, you pop something like this in and you wind up in Kathmandu. So you have to make sure if you're using Google Earth or any other map program that your preferences are set correctly. And the other thing about this fix is it was good for a 100 mile radius. It wasn't super precise. 
So if you can't calculate latitude and longitude in your head, this is somewhere between 60 and 260 miles northeast of Cape Canaveral. Or more simply, the center of the fixed circle was 125 miles due east of Daytona Beach. Cush points out that this explains the bad communication with Fort Lauderdale, which was a minimum of 200 miles from that fix and a max of 400 miles. Radio range in the Avenger was 125, so they were way out of range. And that's why Fort Lauderdale was having such a hard time talking to them and going back to when they first started out. Yeah. And it was Stoll, I think, who first talked to him and he said, I'm in the Keys, and he started flying towards the Keys to go meet them, and the signal was getting weaker and weaker. This is again confirming that they were actually going away from each other. Yeah. The fix confirms that the planes were headed to the north or to the northeast, at least at that point. And the radio stations in Cuba that we mentioned earlier that were crowding the airwaves at 4,805 kilocycles were actually closer to the Naval Air Station at Fort Lauderdale than Flight 19 was. Mm-hmm. So it's a real big problem, again, for communications, which comes back to what we were saying a few minutes ago. Right. So again, this was a fascinating thing to me because having that location tells us a lot. One of the main things it tells us is we can sort of guess how much fuel they've been through and we can identify a maximum search area from that point. Without that location at that time, whatever the last location you get, you can't identify the search area. It's like MH370. They know where it went up to a certain point, but then from when you lose it from that point and you're trying to figure out how much fuel it had left, it could go almost anywhere. And with Flight 19, with the 1,000-mile range, and flying a course that is ostensibly 310 miles, but getting lost at about 200 miles into it, then Flight 19, depending on conditions, if they have headwinds or tailwinds and how much they're having to throttle up and down to deal with those or adjust their course, they should have had probably 800 miles worth of range left when they first got lost. Right. The hours of flying is about five, five and a half. Right. Depending on headwinds and different environmental variables. Exactly. And their top speed was 125 knots or something like that. However, as we said, there was a 31-knot breeze at the altitudes they were at blowing out of the southwest. So if that was behind them, this is another important factor. And they were traveling to the north or the northeast thinking that they were looking for Florida because they were in the Gulf of Mexico, which they weren't. Yeah. But with that tailwind, they would have gone even further. They would have gone an extra 30 knots per hour to 150 or 160 knots. They could have really gotten real far away. But they were also going back and forth and making turns. And we know that from the radio conversations that they were having. You know how we were talking about all those fun books we had growing up about all the strange and mysterious topics that were popular at the time and what probably influenced us to do a show about them one day? Oh, yeah. Well, I found five books just on the Bermuda Triangle alone over at Audible. That's cool. Did anything interesting pop up? Yeah. Well, there's one that immediately caught my eye because it makes that connection between another one of my favorite topics, Atlantis. And the book is called Atlantis, colon, Bermuda Triangle by New York Times bestselling author Bob Mayer. Writing is Robert Doherty. The colon is actually punctuation. It's not really spelled out in the title as the word colon. Yeah, yeah, I got that. <laughs> Wait, okay. Isn't he the author of that series of really popular Area 51 novels? Yeah, yeah. And this one's fiction? I guess you could call it sci-fi fantasy fiction, but isn't it really nice to enjoy fiction once in a while? Oh, yeah. It's been a while, actually. We've had to read so much nonfiction. It really is a treat when we get to just experience a book as entertainment. That's the great thing about Audible, as I'm sure all of you out there are doing with this show. You can listen while you do something else. Yeah, whether you're processing samples in the lab or making art in your workshop or driving your big rig, 
Audible is a great way to catch up on your favorite content, you know, aside from our show, of course, because they have an unparalleled selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading broadcasters, entertainers, and magazine publishers. Whatever your favorite genre is, Audible probably has it. From history and thrillers to romance, sci-fi, business, and self-development, and even audio for kids and young adults. And now you can get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by going to audible.com slash A-L. And then you can download your choices to your iPhone, Android device, Fire tablet, iPod, or any other MP3 player. That's right. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com A-L and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. One more time, go to audible.com A-L. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash A-L and get started today. Hello, everyone. This is Mrs. Sawbones, and you're listening to the Astonishing Legends podcast. And you're not alone. We know this because we have infrared cameras. Now, let's get back to the show. Missing Search Planes. Remember the missing search planes we told you about? Turns out one of them just had an iced antenna. This, again, is indicative of the bad weather that was coming in that night, which they had known about. And Fort Lauderdale, actually, there was a storm approaching Fort Lauderdale. What's happening is that as the sun's going down, remember, this is December, so it's winter. And as the sun starts to go down, the seas that were also moderate to heavy are getting pretty choppy. And the wind is picking up almost like 40 miles an hour in some gusts. So the weather's turning bad, even though it was favorable conditions earlier. As a result of that, the Dumbo... Wait, wait, say, say your favorite phrase. Okay, here we go. The Dinner Key Dumbo. <laughs> right. <it's, laughs> I, it I just sounds it. Like, a, like a goofy car. Yeah. yeah. The okay. Dinner Key Dumbo, because it was the Dumbo that took off from Dinner Key. You're right. It came back into contact, and those men eventually safely returned. But during the time that the antenna was iced, which was for about an hour, I believe, no one could reach them, and that's when they were panicking about another plane going down. Yeah. This also adds to the overall mystery, which is covered in Michael McDonald's article called Flight 19, The Lost Patrol, and this appeared in the Naval Aviation News in June 1973. And it's again, it's another pretty sober account of it. What I like about this article is he takes into account the story as legend as it's grown over the years. And he said it probably started from a piece of misinformation that gets retold and retold, like so many stories we cover here. And that gets woven into, baked into the legend. And so it's these panicked communications like, we're flying into white seas, we can't see where we are, the sky looks weird. Yeah. All these things get retold over and over. And like the first Dumbo not being able to communicate, it's like, and they lost contact with all rescue planes. Like, well, no, no, it came back. It did come back. <laughs> it did come back. And an we hour. did that ourselves. It was yeah. our cliffhanger from part one. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to have a little fun with you guys. Well, it is, yeah. No, but, but it, it is weird. It, it, it the happen. truth is sure. they were back in touch with that Dumbo before they had problems with the other search plane. We led you to believe that they were both out of touch at the same time. But that's, you know, that's called a well, creative, creative storytelling. <laughs> creative license. But if you're one of the rescuers and you're at the Naval Air Station there in, in either Banana River or Fort Lauderdale, and it's been over an hour and now there's no communications happening, you can understand the panic that's probably mounting. Like, what's going on here? 
why do we have so many planes now that we can't hear back from? What's, yeah. It's starting to get weird. And right. just quickly an aside about what you just said. One thing that we found in multiple cases, including this one, are whether you're dealing with Kincaid's Cave or Amelia Earhart or any other legendary story, is a lot of times it's journalists with less than stout ethics who well, are <laughs> making know. up yeah. quotes and make up some right. information because they have sort of the general idea, but they didn't actually talk well, to anyone and they're trying yeah. to get to press. And I'm not casting aspersions on I'm just saying that there's some journalists that were, and then that stuff gets baked into the folklore. Right. And the next thing you know, a UFO came down and a little green man threw a rope out and <laughs> took Flight 19 away. The main thing was trying to sell newspapers. And that was, you know, when you review media outlets back then, it was scrupulous reporters and less scrupulous reporters. But as the years have progressed, I think that probably turned into either a little bit of laziness or they heard some bad information because they talked to somebody. It's a whole bunch of fake news. Some of it's fake, <laughs> and then you know what? Sometimes you think it's fake, and it's not. That's right. Always keep that in mind. So, yeah, it, it, my, you point, know, it's yeah. my favorite thing, and I think I've brought this up in prior episodes. But my favorite thing is when in Men in Black, when they go to get information from the Weekly World News, they're <laughs> like, "This is a reliable source of information." <laughs> yeah, so, well, <laughs> hey, sometimes the National Enquirer has broken some stories that turned out to be true, where you're thinking like, "Oh, that can't possibly be true about that senator." Uh, oh yeah, John Edwards. Uh, okay, yes, yeah, Griffin, right. North Carolina. It, 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 he seems so nice. The and Enquirer then, yeah. broke that story, didn't they? they they did. They yeah. did indeed. So it's not that very often, but occasionally something that's so crazy it can't possibly be true bat, is true. Bat boy. <laughs> bat boy. Not sure about that, but we've certainly heard strange uh, cryptid kind of stories, which might be true. But in this case, I think what's happening is that, yeah, it's little shades of reportage or just hearsay that maybe even came from the people that were involved in the search. Like, man, it was really weird. Like we heard this weird chatter and then we couldn't get a hold of them for an hour and then that story gets retold and retold, and maybe that gets picked up in some articles. Yeah, it does. And it brings to mind a, another salient point about this kind of story that involves hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people, because this search did involve over a thousand people. It's searching this. over 200,000 square miles. Right. And what you have to remember is that these are people of all different kinds of belief systems and personal philosophies and theories on what might have happened. Like, for example, Lieutenant Taylor's mother and aunt, who both were very much concerned about the loss of their son and nephew, they were prone to being superstitious, which right. a lot more people were at that time. And especially in the military, there was a lot more of a, an acceptance of superstitious feelings, especially yeah. about doing these dangerous jobs. Well, that's one of the great things about World War II stories is you, we have all sorts of strange tales coming out and they're not all just, I won the war by myself single-handedly. It was a pretty sobering experience. And I believe that when these strange things happen, in these extreme circumstances, it sticks out. And so it's like amazing tales, you know, nothing that crazy, but I have heard some very weird things and some bordering on the paranormal. Or astonishing legend. It's, it could be an astonishing legend or it could be exaggerated, but a lot of the times I've heard some very strange things from veterans themselves when, when I was a kid coming back of just weird things happening that shouldn't have. Witnessed by several guys, this was life and death for them. They might be kidding around with you, but when they told you something like that really happened, I tend to believe it. The interpretations of the time might be different, might be superstitious. In this case, you might read Lieutenant Taylor's 
asking the aviation training duty officer to sit this one out. Is that premonition? Did he feel... Well, that's what his mom thought. Well, yeah. Was he just hung over and like, you know what? Uh, I don't feel so great. Or did he have a bad feeling like, I don't know about this one. I Maybe it's not such a good idea. Or did that even happen? Because right. the other thing that Larry said in his book was that there was another flight leader that day who was legitimately sick and did ask to be removed right. from his flight and was... And he thought it was possible that the man who had stated that Lieutenant Taylor had asked to have... You talking about the aviation training duty officer? Yes. Yeah, he was thought it was that? possible that the aviation training duty officer might have mistaken the right. request from the other flight instructor for one from Taylor. Right. So it might not have even taken place. Exactly. Again, even when you go to the source... Yeah, it's, even it's, the source. And the guy yeah. admitted it himself. He's like, yeah, I'm not sure who said it. I mean, he's in this room dealing with <laughs> dozens of guys <laughs> yes, taking right, off every day. Right, and hundreds of people all day long. Yeah. Talking to the source is still better than making something up on your own. Right. Or, or just guessing. So let's talk about the other search plane, the PBM Martin Mariner, known by call sign Training 49, that they also lost contact with. That one was a bit of a different story. That one indeed was never heard from again. And that's what the quote was from the beginning of the show tonight. To explain a little bit about what happened to it, no one really knows, but there were eyewitnesses to a large explosion in the air in the exact area that the plane was supposed to be at. Actually, it's not clear whether the explosion was in the air or on the surface of the water. But there was an oil tanker called the SS Gaines that saw the explosion with what they described as 100-foot flames, and they steamed towards that location. But when they got there, they reported that they saw an oil slick, but no debris of any kind, no survivors, no nothing, just an oil slick in the water. I read online somewhere, but I couldn't really corroborate this, so I don't know how good a fact this is. And usually I wouldn't even share something like this without corroborating it, but I think, again, it contributes to the myth. It's like what Forrest was saying a few minutes ago. Supposedly a sample of that water came back and there was no oil in it, so they were mistaken about it being a slick. So then that brings the whole question about were they even in the right place or did they even see the PBM explode? Right. They searched that area with lights, though. They found no survivors and, as I said a minute ago, no trace of the plane. So we can't really know if the Mariner was what they saw, but it was in the right place. That is one thing we do know. It was the right place and the right time cooperating with when they stopped hearing from the plane and it supposedly dropped off the radar for somebody. I remember that it was on someone's radar and it, and, and it disappeared at that point. So it never came back to base. No parts of it were ever recovered. No, and that was probably due to the very rough seas at the time. You wouldn't necessarily be able to recover any wreckage here. The water was only 78 feet deep there. I don't understand. Ah why they haven't dove on that. Supposedly, they never dove on it. 78 feet is not that deep. They should be able to go down there and recover what's left of that plane, or they should have been able to. The question is, did they do it surreptitiously? Why did they not even look for it there? That's something that I do not understand. It's another well, one of the many things in this story yeah, that I don't understand. I mean, they, I don't think they did at the time because the seas were pretty heavy. And Yeah, was, I mean, not that night, but no, I mean, no. it's been 50 years or whatever. <laughs> right. So. Underwater, there are currents and things shift and things end up a long ways from where they dropped. That's uh, true. The, the, good, the, the point being is I just saw this as a documentary on the, uh, the Pharaoh. The container ship that sank 
the box yeah, just this past year, right? 60 Minutes did a story on it, which you pointed out to me and I watched. It was pretty fascinating. Yeah, that's where I got this from. Yeah. That The black box, which was actually orange, that ended up maybe half a mile away from the ship yeah. as it's sinking. And that's at a lower depth even, I think, than the Titanic. Yeah, that is. But that's another point. I'm coming back on the PVM. Right. It was only 78 feet. Right. Stuff is not going to go that far, even if you're in the Gulf Stream. I don't understand if it's in 78 feet of water, why you wouldn't be there looking for that mariner. Well, regardless of the wreckage, it's a pretty solid sighting, although yielding not a lot of solid evidence in the aftermath. Zero solid evidence. Exactly. Aside from a purported oil slick. Right. So we have a report from the SS Gaines Mills, which was the tanker that was cruising in the area. And they're the ones who saw the 100 foot high flames and the burst that was either in the air or on the water as it possibly crashed. They went up and sailed through the oil slick looking for survivors, found none. And so we have a direct report from that ship's captain. But we also have a message from the USS Solomons, which uh, CVE-67, which was participating in the search and later confirmed the merchantman's report and a lot of the fears at Banana River Naval Air Station. So here's a quote from the USS Solomons. Our air search radar showed a plane after takeoff from Banana River last night joining with another plane, the second PBM then separating and proceeding on course 045 degrees at exact time, SS Gaines Mills sighted flames and in exact spot, the above plane disappeared from the radar screen and never reappeared. Right, that's the lost radar signature I was talking about a minute ago that I couldn't remember. And again, this is from Michael McDonald's report here that the reason they didn't search that night was that it was getting very choppy. So in rough seas, and maybe the shallow depth has something to do with that, Pieces are now going to be scattered all over the place. So nothing was recovered or searched for that evening. But the next day, water samples were taken in the area and it developed an oily film on the water. So presence of fuel and oil. Okay, so that's different from the other report I heard that okay. said it wasn't oil. Yeah, this is saying an oily film uh, appeared in the water samples and the area was not buoyed due to the heavy seas, nor were they diving or doing salvage operations I think because the seas were still rough. Again, remember, it's winter, it's December. The depth of the water was only 78 feet, and the site was close to the Gulf Stream. So That's true. these are and, all factors. And I watched a documentary several years ago that suggested that if Flight 19 gone down above the Gulf Stream or in the Gulf Stream, in particularly deep water, that the wreckage could have traveled miles, I think up to five miles or more before it actually hit the seafloor. Oh, sure. No, it's crazy. We're going to talk a little bit about, if I can remember <laughs> to put it in the notes, a story about a plane crashing in a river. And vanishing. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Completely. I mean, like totally A shallow vanishing. river. Yeah, a shallow like a river. 30 feet or something. Yeah. So you don't realize, you, th you think it should be the still there. I think that was Marie that That, that was Marie Mayhew's yeah. mother who came up with that yeah, one. Yeah, right. And, and that's a fun little story that is probably not so paranormal in its mystery, but definitely strange in its actual, real, <laughs> verifiable facts that they searched very shortly after the plane went down and still couldn't find it. Right. So there you go. It happens. Well, I would like to mention that the Martin Mariner PBM, and first of all, he mentioned the Banana River base. That is where both Martin Mariners flew out of. And originally, we talked about this in part one, but they were asked to go on two different routes and converge so yes. they could maximize their search area. Area. Right. And the problem was, was that when the one of them went to converge, the other one wasn't there. And that's the one that got lost. And that was training 49. Training 32 was actually sent to the spot to look for training 49. So training 49 was the one that went down, but training 32 was assigned to go look where the SS Gaines had seen the explosion in the oil slick and they didn't see anything. They didn't see any debris or anything. And, uh, you yeah. know, they might not have been able to see an oil slick at night from the air, 
but they couldn't find any trace of that other plane. So both those planes had flown out of Banana River, which is where they were based. So when you had mentioned Banana River, I just wanted to explain to people where the planes had come from. Right. And as we said before, nowadays it's Patrick Air Force Base. Exactly. Where there's a U.S. Space Command outpost there. So, yeah. And, but it's very strange. You usually expect some flotsam. Yes. Floating. Because there are seats, there's life jackets that, unfortunately, there might be bodies in them that may not have survived, but you expect to see something floating. Yes. And hopefully, you are always hoping for survivors, but it's very strange that they saw nothing. Not a thing. And I think I've said this before on the show in an older episode, but I love flotsam and jetsam. <laughs> you know the difference, <laughs> right? Flotsam is like that. It's like debris yeah. that's left over after something has sunk or you know right. fallen to the Davy Jones locker. And jetsam is stuff that you intentionally discharge. Uh-huh. So when you're trying to fake uh, that you've been damaged by death charges and you're in your submarine, you jettison out the torpedo tube some mattresses. So yeah. they see something like, oh, there we go. We got them. Let's move trash on. trash out. Just like Han Solo did in the Imperial ah, cruiser. Like yes. Sent the trash out. He drifted away with the trash, right? In the Millennium Falcon. That's, that is true. I think it was. Yes. I'm right. Hiding, that wrong. hiding in there. So I'm going to have a geek war if, <laughs> if I got that wrong. <laughs> right. I do want to mention the 13 men who were on the Martin Mariner that lost their lives that yes. were never found. That would be the pilot, Lieutenant Junior Grade Walter G. Jeffrey, and his crew, which consisted of Harry G. Cohn, Roger M. Allen, Lloyd A. Eliason, Charles D. Arsenault, Robert C. Cameron, Wiley D. Cargill, James F. Jordan, John T. Menendez, Philip B. Neiman, James F. Osterheld, Donald E. Peterson, and Alfred J. Zawicki. And we should honor these guys. They were out trying to rescue the members of Flight 19, and they lost their lives themselves. I think it's important for us to point out that the Martin Mariner had a very unfortunate nickname, which was the Flying Gas Tank. Yeah. And Training 49, specifically, the missing one, had run aground apparently a week earlier, but it was thoroughly inspected and no damage was found. There's some question as to whether or not that could have been the issue, what caused it to go up. Other Martin Mariners have exploded, and there have witnesses who have seen that happen over land, over air bases. So maybe Training 49 just got unlucky that day, but still I want to know how bad could that day get for the Navy. Hey, Scott, do you know what the world's most shoplifted item is? Hmm, no, wait, no, wait. is it something locked away in a plastic cabinet at the drugstore or the supermarket? Yes. Aha. It's shaving razors, my friend, and do you know why? Well, if I had to guess, I would say it's because they're small, so they're easy to steal, but more importantly, they cost so dang much. Well, the fact that they're shoplifted so much that they had to be locked away is part of the reason that Jeff and Andy started Harry's. I guess Andy called Jeff after a trip to the drugstore to kind of complain about how much razors cost and how he had to wait 15 minutes for an employee to open the case. It's irritating. And then you're getting gouged unless you buy those cheap disposables, which end up gouging your face. When Jeff and Andy realized that you couldn't get high quality blades for a fair price, they realized that the way everyone was forced to buy blades was broken. So they knew they had an opportunity to disrupt the marketplace. Well, they really disrupted the process when they bought their own razor blade factory in Germany that had 100 years of blade making experience. Then they cut out the stores being the middleman. And that's how Harry's can sell a high quality blade and handle for half the price of the major brands. And you're not giving anything up with a Harry's shave because their razors are made with five German engineered blades, a lubricating strip, a flex hinge for a comfortable glide, and a trimmer blade for those hard to reach places, all on a cool looking weighted ergonomic handle. The only thing you're giving up is the markup. 
Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they want you to try their most popular trial set for free. It comes with a razor handle of your choice, five-blade cartridge, and shaving gel. And it's free when you sign up. Just pay a small fee for shipping. To redeem your free trial offer, go to harrys.com slash A-L-P right now. That's harrys.com slash A-L-P. You know, Flight 19 got me interested in a whole plethora of things I didn't realize I wanted to learn about. And after a few minutes of being like a deer in the headlights about that conundrum, I remembered that the Great Courses Plus was at my beck and call and my problems would soon be remedied. Forrest, how many lectures do they have over there now? There are over 8,000 tremendously fascinating video lectures at the Great Courses Plus that will take you down rabbit holes of knowledge and wonder or improve your life skills with personal finance, cooking, art and music, travel and hobbies. It's almost anything you can think of. And all taught by award-winning experts. Go see for yourself with a free one-month trial to the Great Courses Plus right from your mobile device or laptop by texting the word LEGENDS to 86 Three two nine, and you'll receive a link to sign up so you can start watching an unlimited number of courses immediately right on that mobile device. All right, enough with the tangents. Let's get back to the lecture series we're already captivated with at The Great Courses Plus, The Black Death, the world's most devastating plague. Where do scholars think the plague came from, and why isn't it popping up all the time? Well, since the plague of Justinian in the 6th century to the plague of the 14th century, and then the plague that hit Canton, China in 1894, It seems to researchers that the same bacillus was responsible for all three, but that the bacterium itself has evolved. And while no one knows exactly how plague originated, there are some interesting theories. One being that the Black Death really wasn't plague at all, that it was something else entirely, or another theory is that it was a combination of different diseases. But my favorite theory, I think, is that the plague comes from space, carried aloft by comet dust, or sown from the impacts of meteors. That would be the invasion of the body snatchers theory. (laughs) Or the body putrefiers theory, yes. We think you'll find this or any of the other Great Courses lectures just as binge-worthy. Check them out right now with your mobile device or message app by texting the word LEGENDS to the number 86 Three, two, nine. And you'll get a link to sample as many courses as you want for a whole month for free. We think you'll be hooked from the very first lecture. To get the reply text, standard message and data rates apply. One last time, text L-E-G-E-N-D-S to the number 86329 to receive this free month offer for the Great Courses Plus. I'm Ron O'Rourke, and I just took a break from research for the ARC to record this segue. Thanks for listening to the show. Ditching. I want to take a look at the big picture here, where we're at so far. Flight 19 is missing and probably flying the wrong way. PBM Martin Mariner, training 49, lost with no trace, 13 men aboard. 27 men are now missing and as of today, presumed dead. Flight 19's status at this point in the story that we're telling, they are not on the emergency frequency. There has been some bickering heard between the pilots. They couldn't really make out who. There's a lot of transmissions where they weren't able to identify who was talking, but they definitely heard some back and forth. Yeah, yeah, questioning, not outright arguing. But there is a senior officer and junior officer kind of relationship going here where there's a trainer and you don't question your higher-ups. That's correct. And also within the aircraft, there are senior and junior officers. Exactly. So their hierarchy is working its way through the system. Right, but there's definitely grumbling. Why aren't we just flying west? We'd be home by now. 
And we don't know for sure, but it seemed at least at one point that Lieutenant Taylor's compasses were not working. He said, both my compasses are out. Yes. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in theories sure. about the fact of whether they were out or not. Well, of and, course. <laughs> yeah, it's a big factor. No, it really is a big factor. Yeah. That's, that makes a huge difference. And darkness is falling. We've got bad weather moving in. They are likely flying north, east, and west, zigzagging their way into oblivion because Lieutenant Taylor is hopelessly lost, and we sort of know where they were based on the fix that we just mentioned earlier. Right. Well, sometimes that is a technique where the radar operator, if they can't get a fix on a plane, judging distance, where you have the plane flying in kind of a stair-step pattern, turning direction. But that was not the case here. Yeah. And another important factor is the chain of command that we were just talking about. It prevents the students from questioning Lieutenant Taylor's actions. I mean, he's seen action. Some of them may or may not have seen action. But right. the, the bottom line is that you don't question the superior officer who is leading the whole mission. Again, he's got over 2,000 of flight hours. These guys have about 300 each. So it'd be like your teenage son who's just got his training license questioning you if you've been driving for 20 years. You know, it's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. Hey, 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 hey. I don't know what I'm doing. The real question is what happened to them? And we're going to really get into that in the third part of this series. But for right now, I'm going to say they ran out of fuel and they all wound up ditching together in some unknown location in the either the Atlantic Ocean or some people will tell you overland. Again, we'll get to that in part three because mm -hmm. there's a lot of fascinating stuff there with radar signatures and eyewitnesses saying that they sighted a squadron of planes over land yeah. in Florida. And there was that case where planes were found on land. Yes, but Avengers. Yeah, but not... They the weren't the ones, right ones. Exactly, not the right ones. There are engine numbers, there are part numbers, as we know from the Amelia Earhart story, which identify aircraft. So if you can find a part and you can get a number off of it, you'll know when it was made and what manufacturing plant. That's right. Talking about ditching and what is probably one of the most likely scenarios for what happened to these Avengers, we said in part one, and I'm going to restate it here, that Lieutenant Taylor had ditched three times before. And I think all three of those were in Avengers. I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure. And one time he didn't even get wet as he got out and got into <laughs> right. the raft. He had kind of a Sully Sullenberger experience. But let's talk a little bit about how an Avenger ditches. And this is something that they're pretty well identified. By the time the plane's manufactured, the manufacturer themselves will tell you what's going to happen if the plane goes down in the water. And with respect to the Avenger, it's extremely nose-heavy because it's got this big engine way out in the front. According to Grumman with the TBM, it was supposed to float for 15 to 20 seconds. But pilots, including Taylor, would have told you that they float twice as long, usually about 30 to 40 seconds, if they are able to be ditched intact. What happens is after the plane comes down, and this is on relatively calm seas, the crew exits, and there's a hatch on the outside, which you can see in some pictures that we have, that has a life raft in it and a survival kit, like Forrest mentioned earlier. So you're supposed to pull the raft out, you get it going, and then you, and I believe you had indicated that it probably inflates with gas cartridges, right? Yeah, CO2, Yeah. when you pull it, like they do now, you pull the cord, it inflates, so you're not having to sit there blowing it up like a kiddie pool. And then you have a small pack of just basic survival elements in there. You know, my grandfather had one that he probably pulled out of a, a plane. He used to decommission planes after the, the war, and he was a civilian working at an Air Force base before that. He decommissioned the Memphis Bell, helped to do that. And so he had a lot of various items from different planes, and he let me play with the life raft 
out of a fighter plane. And I got to tell you, they're very tiny. Right. So for one person. Yeah, you do have uh, some items in there that will, you know, like a sea anchor, which is uh, basically just a nylon bucket with an open end and parachute cord. You drag that net. That'll help keep you more stationary than the sea blowing you around. Yeah, on, t- on the surface. Right. Yeah. You don't get a whole lot. And when you crash, they lost a lot of their equipment. So they did get the raft, but some of their survival equipment went down with the plane. Yeah. It's a very tense situation. <laughs> you know, yeah. So. You've got less than a minute to figure out whether or not all that's going to work. And it right. all depends on if the plane lands intact in the first place. Exactly. That's a big point of contention here. There was one officer, I can't, I believe it was a chaplain who was, who might've been on the Solomons, I can't remember, but he had said that there were 50 foot waves that night, that they were breaking over the deck. Wow. Was the Solomons a carrier? Yes, uh, CVE-67, it was an escort carrier. Right, so it's got a 50 foot deck and the chaplain aboard that ship reported that that night, and they're the same ones that you mentioned that lost the Mariner off the radar, reported that the waves were breaking at 50 feet over the decks of the ship. That's a five-story building. Yeah. Yeah, very tall. And I don't know if you remember, listeners, from part one, but this is also a black night, and I'm not talking about the satellite. This (laughs) is, there is no moon and there is cloud cover, and it is dark, dark, dark. So when you think about these aircraft coming down in the dark on a black night, no moon, no stars, it is most likely not a survivable scenario. Yeah, and this kind of concludes the Michael McDonald article that we talked about earlier, where they interviewed former TBM pilots that we questioned expressed the opinion that an Avenger attempting to ditch at night in a heavy sea would almost certainly not survive the crash. And this, we feel, was the case with Flight 19, the Lost Patrol. And they're saying the aircraft probably broke up upon impact, and those crewmen who might have survived the crash would not have lasted long in the cold water where the comfort index was lowered by the strong winds. So even if you crash your car, and then you still have to live through that. So the airplane crashes, you're probably banged up from that. And that's sinking rapidly. you got to get your gear together. Yeah, if the wings come off, the fuel sludge is just going to be... A, yeah, you're in a big heavy a tube, that's, tube that's filling up with water very quickly. So yeah. that's sinking. You're probably injured. You have to get into a tiny life raft that's being buffeted by huge waves and make it through the night. You know, when I think about it, and I think about one of those scenes, I'm going to mention a pretty old movie here for a lot of our listeners, I think, called An Officer and a Gentleman. <laughs> it was not that, yeah, it doesn't seem that old to me. It doesn't yeah. seem old to us. 80s, but that's 80s, because sure. we're old. In the movie, when they're going through their training, they have to get in this thing that simulates an airplane capsizing in a pool. Yeah, and, and you, you're strapped in. You're strapped yeah. in, right. And it's on these rails, and it shoots down into the water, and then when it gets under the water it flips down completely upside down. Right. And they have to get out of their harnesses, they're in a simulated pilot seat, get out of their harnesses and get to the surface. And it's to teach them how disorienting it is and what it feels like. And when it comes down, it comes down really quick. And in fact, in the movie, in the scene, spoiler alert, I believe somebody drowns, dies in that exercise. Oh, but it does happen. Yeah, people do have accidents in the military. Yeah, and certainly in training and especially that kind of tough training. And, you know, here we are talking about a training mission itself flight yeah. 19 is training so right. but the point is that was a scary situation to me anyway the idea of dealing with that i and i also remember on mythbusters to, to go on one of our patented tangents 
when Adam had to get into the car that went into the swimming pool, because they were yeah. talking about the best way to escape a car that goes into the water. Right. And he went into one car, I think it went upside down, but I can't remember. But whatever it was, I saw recently on a behind the scenes thing that he said it was the most scared he ever was in the entire run of the series. Oh, what upside down in a car. Being in the car, in trying water. to get out of the car underwater. Oh, yeah, sure. It's a frightening thing. And they they talk about training you for that. But and again, this I can bring this all back around to yeah. Mothman prophecies in the scene where the bridge collapses and all the cars go into the river. Yes. You just can't imagine no. what that experience must be like trying to deal with that and imagine an airplane hitting the water and however much they can slow it down to just above stall speed, which I can't remember what it is for an Avenger, but it's probably still around 100 miles an hour. And hitting a possible 50-foot wave is like flying a plane into a building. Yeah. And no, then trying to get right. out and go swimming. Yeah, there's no airbag. So you're smacking at that speed like concrete. Yeah. The aircraft probably broke apart, according to these former TBM pilots. And so that's busted up. And now, again, you might have a broken arm, broken leg. Right. E even though Taylor had survived three other water landings, maybe this is the one he did, he wasn't so lucky on. Again, you don't know what they went through. All I know is that they did survive the first leg of it. Now they have a whole night of very cold, hypothermic-inducing water to survive. More than a night. Yeah. Well, I mean, if they, depending on where they went down, and no, we'll talk about this in part right. three, there's large portions of the possible search area that were never searched. That begins your ordeal if you do survive. And of course, as we know, as it turned out, they were never found. So you don't know how long they may have had to survive in a tiny life raft with one up to three people. So, and yeah, and here's another question Were they still together? When you think about how yeah. the situation was getting more and more dire, and maybe if the students were starting to really get concerned about what was going on with Lieutenant Taylor, they might not have had the discipline to want to stay in formation. And flying in formation also in bad weather is dangerous. But one of the things that I have to wonder is later there were conversations heard, I believe, between Instant Bossy mm -hmm. and someone else who was unidentified that sounded like Taylor wasn't even involved in those conversations. So that begs the question, had a couple of guys broken off, had a plane already run out of fuel, had some changed directions, which of course contributes to the difficulty in finding anyone. If they split up, they could be in all different places. So that's just something to think about. They could also have easily gotten lost in the darkness. Samantha from the Ark, her friend Hank actually said, in bad weather, if they can't stay together as a group over water, it's all over. If they're flying in formation, they follow the wingtip of the plane in front of them. If they go off kilter and get caught just right in the jet stream, of the plane in front of them, their plane could actually flip given the right amount of turbulence. So if they ditched and they were far out in the northeastern Atlantic Ocean, could they ever have been found? There's no way to know how many times they turned or what their heading was because the radio communication was infrequent and garbled, and essentially they became lost forever. It shows you you don't have to be that far off the coast of the United States in the 20th century and go missing forever. It also reminds you how dangerous the ocean is. And that's the reason I never graduated past being a day sailor. I <laughs> you loved didn't want to do the night sailing. sailing. Yeah. Well, even with day sailing, I had to cross the, I, I know I mentioned this in a prior episode too. I tell the same stories over and over. And I'm <laughs> yes, sorry do. if well, you right. remember it, but I had sailed with my father from Marina del Rey to Catalina Island. And that takes you across the international shipping lane, which has these tankers yeah. in it. And right. my dad had a laptop that would allow you to take a sighting on the tanker. And you would take two sightings a few minutes apart, and then the computer would calculate the speed that the tanker was going. And this would tie in with your route. Uh -huh. 
because modern tankers take five miles to come to a complete stop from full speed if they slam on the brakes. Yeah. Five miles. Right. So he would take a couple of sightings. We were looking at this one way off on the horizon, but we had to cross that highway, that tanker highway to get to Catalina. (laughs) And we're up on the deck. It's a beautiful day, catching the wind. And I was not seasick this particular day. And you hear from down in the cabin, he, do, 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 do. We go down and his laptop is collision warning. And there's a collision warning. And it turns out that his computer was telling us that if we did not change course, that thing was going to turn us to matchsticks. Yeah. And it was way far away. Right. All we did was we just fell off our course a little bit, slowed down. And sure enough, in about 20 minutes, we were real close to it. And it went by us. And that for me, that was just like, okay, this is the real deal. And if something happens there, they're not even going to be able to stop and help you. They can't. No, exactly. And by the time anyone gets out there, even though you're well within sight of land, you're probably a goner. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot to think about, and there's a lot to think about with these planes and these single-engine planes, which I still can't figure out why the Navy would not put direction finders in single-engine planes. Yeah, that might be a miscommunication, I'm not sure, on the research end of this. We don't know what's right about that or what's accurate. Larry Cush did a really thorough and fantastic job, but it may be something he overlooked or got some misinformation on. Epilogue. There's a lot more details you can find out about this mystery, but we've covered the gist of it. If you want to know more, we highly recommend you read some of the books that we have mentioned. There's also another book by Gian Quasar. I'm not sure I'm saying his name right, but he came to Quasar is right. Yeah, yeah. He came to a different conclusion about the flight crashing over land as opposed to Larry's conclusion that they may have disappeared out at sea. So that's a whole nother perspective. There's a lot of possibly just as likely. Yeah, possibly just as likely. So if you want to do more research on it, you can keep going. Our next and last episode in this series, which will be out the week after next, will detail all of the theories associated with this story and include a fascinating interview with a world-class remote viewer whose team has looked into the case as well. A lot of things about this story feel cut and dried. You might think, well, for whatever reason, Lieutenant Taylor was simply disoriented and made a series of mistakes that took Flight 19 out to sea. But that hypothesis just scratches the surface of this mystery. Why would a pilot with his years of combat experience, known for his dead reckoning navigational skills, become convinced that he had flown 100 miles southwest to the Florida Keys when he had just taken off from Fort Lauderdale and gone east out to sea? Also, is it just an odd coincidence that PBM Training 49 vanished without a trace that night? The mystery surrounding Flight 19 only just begins with the disappearance of those 27 men. It is replete with little bits of information that seem to defy explanation, and when we get into the theories about Flight 19 the week after next for our final part of the series, we'll take you down that rabbit hole. In the meanwhile, we're going to leave you with just one of the many incidents that have made this story so infamous. FT-36, which was piloted by Captain Edward Joseph Powers, had a radio man aboard, Sergeant George Richard Panessa. Panessa was United States Marine Corps Reserve, He'd been born in 1917 in Mamaroneck, New York. He was the third of eight brothers and sisters. When Flight 19 vanished, he was just one year younger than Lieutenant Taylor at 28. Sergeant Panessa's brother, Joe, was a corporal in the Marines as well. And he received a Western Union telegram from George once that said the following. To Corporal Joseph Panessa, Marine Barracks 8th and I Street, Southeast Jacksonville, Florida. You have been misinformed about me. Am very much alive, Georgie. That telegram was sent on December 26th, 1945, 21 days after Sergeant Panessa and the rest of Flight 19 vanished. 
Well, that's going to wrap it up for part two of our series on Flight 19. We'll be back in two weeks with part three of this series, The Theories. We'd like to thank Squarespace.com, Audible, The Great Courses Plus, and Harry's.com for sponsoring the show, as well as our wonderful patrons at Patreon.com. We'd also like to give a quick shout-out to J.L. Rivera. Thanks for listening, man, and hang in there. Special thanks to John Boland. Hi, I'm Michelle. I'm Mrs. Sawbones. Hi, I'm Ron Rowe. If you're not some kind of vampire, witch, or were-thing yet, don't worry. You will be soon enough with no implied promise of present or future compensation. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Thank you.